Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 15. Without fanfare, we pop back to the real universe, directly into a solar orbit on the edge of Hefa star system, right at the jump point. The ride into Duenda would take six days. That was time to think, but also time for others to act. In theory, it was possible for an enemy ship to drop in behind us and make itself known in the worst possible way, before we could manage any real distance. It was pretty unlikely, though, since this was not a system such a ship could expect to operate in quite so freely. The kind of defenses Hefa had in place at the edge of its gravity shadow would make any such attack by a singular warship a singular and final event for it. Directed energy weapons, or DEWs, capable of long-range strikes along with missile and mass driver batteries that could bombard and destroy whole squadrons of military vessels hung out in oddball orbits in the outer reaches of Hefa. Some of these weapons were designed to be obvious to modern sensors so as to intimidate enemies. Most were designed to be much more difficult to detect so as to kill those enemies without warning. Everyone knew an attack on Hefa would be stupid, even stupid people. Widow Fausel, or Kamatosa Buonacajit, as you will, actually chose not to receive me that trip, no explanation offered or required. She did, however, seem eager to sit with Sindranea for a time. As a real noble, fluent in Seishan, Sindra would have been the more agreeable lunch companion, so I didn't take it to heart. Instead, I spent time preparing for the inevitable interview with Elmond. I didn't need a speech, but I did make a list. Conflict shouldn't be entered into quickly or lightly, and that went double for noble families. True, Elmont had ridden to the rescue, or rather had let Sindra do it, but that was to specifically protect a family member. Allying with the Kajits against a growing hostile power like Lady Trisal was a different matter. Such a thing could be a hard sell, even with strong justification. The list floating in my eye view seemed short and anemic. The biggest selling point for a fight was also the most tenuous, that Lady Trisal was going to turn over the status quo of the Empire. She was looking for change, and any plans for change that didn't originate in Elmond's office were unlikely to benefit the Vernays over much. Aside from the personal danger she represented to the Kajits, and now me, the woman could cause larger instability among the families. Her allies and toadies would no doubt be cheering that point, but the other noble houses could only view it with alarm. That would be my presentation, at least. 
Nothing else on the list was even close to compelling, so I thought it best to keep the argument focused. I did send the talking points over to Sindra for her opinion, but she just dismissed the whole thing, saying that I should speak to her cousin like a regular guy, and he'd respond the same way. That had always been true in the past, but I was too aware of being the outsider, too conscious of my adopted status to leave it to good humor and tolerance. So I worked the list again, fretted over it, and reworked it some more. What did any of it mean, really, having this adoptive family? My own mother and brother were still alive and well in the Alliance. As far as the Vernays were concerned, they might have just been pieces of a dream I'd once had. Blood members of the Vernays clan, and those married in, numbered enough to populate a small town, to say nothing of close friends, long-time employees, assorted hangers-on, and, finally, me, the sole familian Cano. Duenda had become a power base for the Vernays, just as it had been for Baron Deskew before, and most of the family was now ensconced upon the world. The actual number was always in flux, as business, social, private responsibilities off-world, and endless holidays to exotic vacation spots across space kept these wealthy people on the move. Over two billion ordinary folks, who were all rent-paying tenants upon Vernay's land, made up the rest of the planet's population. Some of these were quite rich, too. A few were impoverished. The rest, making up the vast majority, were part of a comfortable, though hard-working, middle class. Duenda was a terraformed world, settled over 200 years before. Like many such planets, it had been modified for human habitation back before the process was fully understood. I mean, they thought they had it all down, and really did get a lot of it right, but some of the small things on a lot of worlds were either botched or skipped entirely, snowballing into big things as time went on. This issue had been well known to Baron Deskew, but under the weight of so very many other vexing problems, he'd mostly ignored it. One of those problems had concerned another world entirely. Barlow just over the border in Ainspace. His attentions there could be generously described as a desperate gamble to procure a very tall pile of free cash, a gamble which failed. The Descue barony was subsequently forced to radically downsize what had once been a financial and material powerhouse in this region of space. Less than a year after becoming patriarch, Elmon pushed the Vernay's FAC, or Family Advisory Council, to endorse his decision to bid for the planet. The FAC was made up of the elder males of the clan, most of whom were quite fiscally conservative. It was an accomplishment for such a young and untested patriarch to secure the trust of these old men. The Vernays joined a silent auction sponsored by the consortium holding it in escrow for another corporate group. Baron Deskew was the primary stockholder of this latter group. The auction was opportune for several reasons. As a major move, it announced to the galaxy that the Vernays were now a family to watch. But it was also something of a backhand to Baron Deskew himself, 
since he was an unofficial though hated enemy of the Vernays, and taking his home from him under such circumstance had been quite appetizing. So much so, in fact, that a new holiday was designated planet-wide after the papers had been signed, Novus Initio, which in Seishan, the language of the noble classes, meant new beginnings. It was an especially clever name, since it could be, and often was, written in low-speak, the language of pretty much everyone else in the empire, as Novus Initio, Similar pronunciation, but with different letters and punctuation. Low speak is a language of combination and context. New words that are instantly understandable to those who are fluent can be made up on the fly by joining other known words together. This creates informal contractions that can accelerate speech by implying exposition rather than requiring a speaker to go into detail. A clever person can also create puns, commentaries, even political or cultural critiques while doing so. There was this famous line from a classic comedy vid in the Empire starring the great Deek Terry Tuva, a comic actor from decades past. Beloved by all, he was even knighted for a lifetime of brilliant work, so he was technically Sir Terry. But that hadn't happened yet when he starred in a vid called Fendo Bop, roughly meaning dance crazy in low speak. In it, he plays a charming, though clumsy, buffoon who, through an improbable set of circumstances, is mistaken for a famous choreographer, with some truly stellar hijinks ensuing. At one point, when his real identity is suspected while he's adjusting his tie in a mirror, the antagonist of the vid says something to the effect of, there's an idiot among us. Without blinking and with comic delivery for the ages, Terry replies with the famous line, Notien vous en That is, I don't see the idiot. I mean, you really have to watch the vid to appreciate that part of it, but believe me, it's very funny. So much so that its cultural significance grew far in excess of just comedy, because notian vusustu en ition can be contracted to novus in itio, while yet holding the same meaning. Since it sounds nearly identical to the Seishan words novus in itio, the joke becomes clear. A holiday called I Don't See the Idiot is created when Baron Deskew loses the planet to financial pressures. While this was unlikely to have been accidental, Elmond always claimed otherwise, though with a devilish twinkle in his eye. When the Vernays took possession of the planet, Elmond implemented a total revamp of the archaic Articles of Occupancy all tenants had been previously required to abide by during the Deskew era. I hadn't known the place then, but the reforms allowed retrospective history vids to be cranked out by the gross, and I'd seen a few documentaries about the institutionalized poverty and oppression during the good baron's rule, and his father's before him. Elmond put jobs and industry first, and foreign investment, both from within and without the empire, literally flew to Hefa system. After just a decade, 
the planet was essentially transformed from an insolvent, strongman-style feudal state into a modern world of the more palatable, benevolent dictator style, with near-universal employment and a fairly high standard of living. It wasn't a free society by alliance standards. He kept a firm eye on the media, for one thing. But it was about a thousand years ahead of the backwards thinking of the Descu barony. A new breed of nobles had rolled in, and the entire star system prospered. Later in the shift, I asked Sindra how her luncheon with the shy countess had gone, and she reported that the woman had been gracious, respectful, and very grateful for all the help so far. I sensed there was more, but discretion in the face of grief wasn't something to ride roughshod over, so I let it drop. I thought long and hard during our ride in from the jump point. We would be safe on Duenda, but that couldn't last, because we couldn't stay there forever. At least I couldn't. The situation had gone somewhat askew for that elegant, cruel, and intelligent woman. Whatever followed, Piani would adjust her established plans to account for first contact with the enemy. She would already have her next move slotting in. She wouldn't be responding emotionally. That meant she was winning. The woman had been thwarted at least thrice now. Four times if you included the street chase back on Juriano. I had beaten her people every time they'd made a move near me, yet it barely amounted to anything because her goals were unaltered. In space combat, you defined your desired outcome. You created your sims in support of it. You polished those sims to the point of readiness. You put them into action when the time was right, and then you updated the relevant data points as new information came in. This had commanded my entire attention, while for her, it was simply one step toward her desired outcome. I was only a new data point in her sim. Any sense of free action I enjoyed going forward would be illusory unless I put my own battle scenarios in place. This had to go sideways for Piani Trasal, and whatever form that took, it had to come out of nowhere. She couldn't plot the data without context. If I did my job, she would have none. If I excelled at it, the data would look familiar, even expected, but be all wrong. It would be truth doing the duty of lies. The real war would be in our heads. To Lady Trasal and her allies, this was only a string of annoying delays. Annoying and as yet unresolved, but hardly alarming. That was good. She was winning, and it was good. When I arrived at his home, the Vernay's patriarch was amusing some guests by the Rainbow Pool, which was reserved for that express purpose. Sindra came in with me, but peeled off to clean up and change from the trip. It had been a haul, and she was feeling it. 
So was I, but the exhaustion had to wait. Elman left explicit instructions for the household staff to escort the Kamatosa Bonacajit and her children to a palatial guesthouse across the estate. He would see them in due course, after they'd had a chance to breathe and rest a bit. Elmond was no idler. I never knew the man to use this pool, or any of the other four on the grounds, except when there were important guests. The splashing and laughing and foolish behavior did not represent indolence, but rather courtesy. This solely in service of family business and security. If you used the word guests in reference to a single party of people currently spending time on this estate, you had to clarify which party they were. Each group was given their own apartments, separate from each other, among the many square kilometers of the Vernay's homestead. The place was a resort where the patriarch just happened to live. I have to admit that when I first met him some years before, Imperios Severanet Gran Patro El Mondoliander Feeral Contendal Vernes Panden was not what I'd been expecting. Sindra and the others had assured me he was an all right sort of fellow. They said he was smart and thoughtful and dedicated to the well being of the family and its interests. It's easy to say nice things about the people you love, so I'd taken all that advertisement with a grain, no, make that a kilo of salt. The Vernay's patriarch was tall when both Sindra and her dad were short, and fair-haired while they were dark. Actually, the commissioner had been mostly gray, but I saw vids of him later as a younger man. Elmond's features were straight and plain, and while not what I'd call classically handsome, he had a charisma that was impossible to deny or ignore. When he walked into a room, everyone's eyes just turned to him. Not in expectation, necessarily, nor in fear. He was just magnetic that way. People noticed him, followed his movements, and remembered his presence without even knowing they were doing it. You've no doubt heard the term born leader before, often from people who don't know what they're talking about. It must be said, though, that until you see it in the flesh, it's a bit hard to comprehend. People didn't agree with every decision Elman made. I mean, he was very intelligent, but that on its own didn't create loyalty. The old commissioner had been brilliant, but not a leader like his successor. The commissioner had needed Machiavellian guile and wits to run the Vernay's family, to make it a wealthy, vital presence in the empire. He'd had to call upon all his daring, desperation, and even genius just to save his child from the fires of Barlow, something he couldn't even do for himself. Elmond wouldn't have needed any of that. People followed him because, well, it's just what you did. There was no need for a web of lies and secrets to intimidate or coerce people into acting as he desired. He simply told them what to do, and they generally did it without fuss. I'd call it magic if that were something real. I'd definitely call it troubling if he was my enemy. I genuinely liked the man. He was funny without forcing it, kind without trying. When he was happy... 
he showed it instantly and without reservation. When he was angry, he took a beat before speaking. His friends were devoted and his enemies few. Oh, sure, behind the scenes, things were as you might expect. The business of taking care of business was handled as it had to be. I myself was party to some of that, but with a man like Elmond, such things happened, and then they went away, because no one could see him in any other light than as the guy who ought to be in charge. If certain things occurred on his watch, then those things had to happen. End of story. Let's hear another. Whatever it was, he had it, and it scared the flippin' daylights out of me. Ejock, he called with a grin and a wave rising from the cool blue water amidst the splashing and screeching of a business associate's children for whom he'd been pretending to be a shark. I had been standing in the carpeted junction inside the house, watching him for a few minutes before proceeding out. He was in good shape, lanky, muscular, wearing an adaptive full-body swimsuit made of some lime and olive-green hydrophobic material. The ultimate in drip dry, only his head was wet as he crossed over to me. There was a fat man and matching woman sitting in the sun, and he called to them over his shoulder in Seishan, excusing himself. He didn't introduce me because they didn't need to know me, nor I them. With anyone else, this might have come across as rude. With Elmond, you didn't even blink. I was caught up with one arm and turned around in a single fluid movement, away from this one of many partners and impedimenta, as if I shouldn't see them nor even wonder about their existence. We went back inside, glass double doors sliding apart silently on our approach. So, into it again? he asked with a chuckle. He spoke in perfect English, his accent light as a summer breeze. He'd been educated all over and over-educated in general. He'd even spent a semester, I'd been shocked to learn, at BMAT University in Jarden, my home star system in the Alliance. I never mean to be, I replied sheepishly. <laughs> Sindronea predicted you'd say that. He was still grinning and now leading the way deeper into the house. Truly, calling it a house was like calling a giant redwood tree on Terra a plant. Accurate, but inadequate. I know of this Lady Trasal, he went on, guiding us to his office. It was quite a walk. She bites. Between husbands right now. Divorced the last one after a year. That took some doing, but she soaked him for an enviable settlement. The one before that died. Him she might have loved. Stuck with it for thirty years. And I heard she recently had the clock reset. How's she look? Expensive. Well, you get what you pay for. Now, this Kamo Kajit fellow, what was he like? I saw his face, then I saw his brains. He died wearing a friendly smile, if that's any sign of character. And the wife, he pursued, as we came to his private study. The dull buff metal doors opened silently at our approach and closed the same way behind. It was a spacious place, cream tile flooring and 
teak-like paneling on the wall, though paler and polished to a shine. There were several pieces of small statuary on raised pedestals here and there, along with a child's finger-paint drawing, richly framed and well-lighted, in a prominent place on the wall. Sindra knows her better than I do. They had a friendly chat on the way over. And all this, what's it about? Money and influence, at least I think so. And so did the dead count. His close servants thought he was spooked. Plus he was looking to relocate to the Alliance, along with all his money. The leader of the Vernays whistled in surprise. That's not easy to do, though I can see the draw. Our banking laws make cross-border transactions difficult. Since all the wealth of the empire is concentrated into relatively few hands, everything possible is done to keep the money here. It's why Uncle Hark had to physically reside upon that hellish Barlow in order to make his investments there legal. So I've heard. The Ain Senate must have thought Count Kajit Boudin could make it happen, because they were working with him to smooth the transition. They had agents watching it all, too. Eli Marzian had been quick to show up, but not too quick. When you did a little math and added up the time required for a clandestine message back to the Alliance for instructions, along with what was needed for a slapped-together cover identity, then you ended up with what I considered to be an unsurprising sum. He'd been shadowing the Cogets on their return trip. Not closely, like a protective detail, just watching, monitoring, reporting. From a distance, obviously, he tossed in. He had a changing room off to one side, along with a shower and other facilities, and he went in there to lose the swimsuit, leaving the door open so we could talk. After a bit, I heard the shower going, and I raised my voice so he could hear. They weren't there when he could have used them, that's a fact. Kind of a bold move when you think about it. Piani Trasal has a hunger that's hard to miss. So you really have met her, then? All too briefly. Or maybe not. She tried to kill me a minute later. This got a whooping laugh, which I waited out before proceeding. Our old buddy Deskew is a big fan of hers, I called evenly. There was a pause, and the sound of the shower continued unaccompanied for a few seconds. Really? Him? Really? Him? This was met with more lonely shower sounds, so I went on. That guy will be another of her future husbands. She might even keep him. I'm told he can be legally crowned emperor if no one else is in the way. It would take some doing, Elmond replied. Several are. All that's required is ambition, patience, and a lack of morals, I said, spotting the liquor fountain in the corner. I'm getting a drink. You want one? Now go ahead. Tell me about the assassination. I found a setting in the dispenser for blended bourbon added some clear ice to a rocks glass, and poured the dark amber liquid a third of the way up its prismed side. The entire family was the target, not just the Kamo. If successful, killing them all would have put the inheritance and the title along an entirely different branch of the family. I had some research done, 
Almond called, sounding half-drowned. It would have fallen to Echo Malenta, a distant relation, the nearest male of rank on the Camo side, if the son were dead too. That whole line is a herd of hungry goats, cash-poor opportunists first and last. Toadies of Lady Trisal's then? Or toadies of toadies. The Count had to have known something was up. If the man had been serious about relocating, the Patriarch replied after the water stopped, he'd have had everything to fear. The Emperor would have put a stop to it, the College of Families the same. The banks, the investment firms, all of them might have done exactly what Lady Trisal did, if for no other reason than to keep his fortune here. But it wasn't any of them, and that wasn't why she did it. She's making a move. A move? He came around the corner then, drying his hair with a towel, wearing a purple robe that looked more expensive than the suit I'd bought on Giuliano Colony. For that matter, so did the towel. Power grab? From whom? Many someones, I'm assuming. Her recent divorce was likely the start of it. Did she rise in social rank through that? Um, he considered it. Actually, yes. The man was a nobelada, I guess you'd say a knight, and she got the same title at marriage. But they aren't technically divorced, it was an annulment, with a prenuptial agreement that included a thing called, oh, how would it be in English, uh, an extended condescendence of rank. She got to keep the title? Clever gal. It was quite the source of gossip for a season or two. Old Uncle Zyro, you know him, right? Bald, spits when he talks? That's him. He lives for stories of intrigue. He's seen every sort of scandal you can imagine over the years, and many you can't. When he heard about that one, Zyro called the woman a devil and warned me to keep clear of her. Huh, then let me add my voice to his, spit and all. I offered, giving an emphatic look that elicited a chuckle. Elmond had a tea brewer slash dispenser on a counter along one wall. Honestly, I could have lived in his office. He poured some of the pale brew into a beautifully patterned china cup, one of a set, along with matching saucers sitting in a perfect row next to the machine, bearing hand-painted lilies and vines. He invited me to do the same with a gesture which I did without even so much as a second thought to my bourbon, which I'd only just tasted. The guy had a power. He could have chosen to settle behind his spaceport-sized desk, all glossy and imposing. But he chose to lean on it instead, his tea on the thing's corner, cooling. I don't even know if he wanted it. He watched me with interested eyes. For a long while, I had figured that the Vernay's patriarch adored his fiery little cousin and just put up with her new pet uncle for her sake. But then there were moments like this one, when I could believe the man considered me a friend. That was likely a fantasy, but not a bad one. How angry is Lady Trisal with us right now? The question was simple, and asked like that held a lot of meaning. Honestly, I don't know that she is, but she needs the remaining cogets gone and their money and rank in hands friendly to her. 
Likely she's got some business and investment machinery on pause for when that goatee relation comes into the inheritance. Phantom business deals with the guy, just waiting to go. The amount of work she's put into this so far implies that there may be a contingency in place, insurance for her investment, you might say. We should hope so, because otherwise she'll be desperate, which is much worse than angry. That's how I see it, too. What do you propose? And here was the scary part. This was where he could find me wanting, where he could dismiss my efforts as unsound and see me for the troublemaker I was. He could even take the safest path and turn the cogets over to Lady Trissal. Anything was possible in the next few seconds. My palms were sweating, and the cup slipped, spilling a bit onto the sofa. Crap! Sorry! She needs to be stopped. This woman wants the Empire to have a different form. I stated this deliberately, wiping at the wet spot with my cuff. Elmond produced a napkin from thin air, and I took it with a nod of thanks. She wants to be in power. Someone ought to be, don't you think? But her? She knows how to organize a long-term project, he offered easily. He wasn't arguing. It was barely possible to argue with him if he wasn't in the mood. I'm pretty good, though, when I am. I doubt Dorcas of the Heather's passengers and crew would find that any comfort, Elmond. And can I say, your Devil's Advocate Act is a little tasteless, all things considered. It's no acty, Jock. Like I said, I know of this woman. I was approached two years ago by a few of her friends. You're right about many things. This has been in the works for a while, and they do seek change, as do a lot of people. You're not telling me you're in on this. No, but I did consider their words. It was a courtesy visit, giving me advance warning to join them or to stay out of the way. My face must have plainly said what was in my mind, because he moved on without pause, though still speaking easily. You've seen the state of things over here. The Emperor has the power of life and death over his subjects. The legal authority to commit his nation to war, or to any action really, regardless of other opinions. A man who keeps the Empire in compartmentalized factions, true medieval fiefdoms, sparring with one another, waging petty battles for even pettier reasons. This is a modern nation to you? I'm not a political scientist, Elmond, and neither are you. I do have a minor degree, actually, but many with doctorates feel the same way. It can't go on like this. The Empire will collapse from within. Assuming that's so, you chose the wrong poster girl for your bright new future. If that woman gets a taste of power, she will not give it up. If she does what's necessary, why would we want her to? She's a murderer! She tried to kill me! A good person or a good leader, Ejok. You can only pick one. I stared at him for a long time. He lifted his cup, took a silent sip, then set it down again on its saucer with a soft rattle. He returned my gaze as easily as before. I tossed back what was left of my own tea, warm and fragrant, 
It was some imported blend, quite nice and likely expensive. Everything here was expensive, including loyalty. That's your final word, I asked, setting the cup and saucer down as carefully as I could. I had a great fear, suddenly, of breaking beautiful things. I told you, I'm still thinking it over. You've given me information, but you're not the only one who has some, nor the only one with a reasoned opinion. I have friends and colleagues. I listen to you, I listen to them, I listen to everyone. Then I do what's best for this family, for its future. That's the function of a patriarch. You shouldn't wish a tyrant onto the throne. They're all tyrants. Anyone who'd take a throne, whether by law, custom, or force. The key is finding a tyrant who wants what you do. I gave him a look and a frustrated head shake. This was not what I wanted to hear. Ejok, we must see an end to internecine fighting. Squabbles between houses, exactly like the one in question. There are ongoing feuds generations old, taking away fathers and brothers and uncles and sons. We need industry and manufacturing to grow. Do you know? Yes, you probably do. The largest business in space is shipping, along with its supportive industries like spacecraft and colony station construction. The leader in this field is corporate space. Second is the alliance. Third are those backward fanatics in church space, believe it or not. We are last on the list. We buy everything from somewhere else. The second largest industry is communications and media production and distribution, where we again behind the rest. I could go on. And this is the woman who's going to save the empire? Power is fueled by blood. It may as well be a law of physics. Maybe we should let this latest murderer make an attempt. If she fails, there's no great loss, or at least nothing worse than if any other dictator had come and gone. If she succeeds, she'll bring in industry. It's how much of her money has been made, and I'm sure she wants more. A civil war isn't worth a few points on a spreadsheet, Elmond. That's a sweeping thing to say. Almost romantic. I'm shocked at you. There's nothing romantic about war. Good people die. Good people kill them. It's nothing but horror. The course of action you advocate would bring it about anyway. And just to oppose this particular woman? I started to reply, but couldn't. It was exactly what I was doing, and exactly why. He could see it on my face. He could see I was working it out, so he took this opportunity to freshen my cup. Okay, that's me, I conceded at last, after a contemplative, but more carefully balanced, sip of fresh tea. It really was some fine stuff. But what about you? What's the goal of the patriarch of an upstart family in this section of the empire? Understanding what we think we do regarding both current affairs and those to be. Long term? I showed you mine. And he eyed me, wondering how to reply, wondering if he should at all. He didn't have to. Considering our very different positions in the family, he owed me nothing while I owed him 
everything, obeisance, labor, and support. Before speaking, he shifted from the corner of the desk to a chair across from me. Yet his tea was still within reach. It was a simple movement changing perspective, both his and my own, without inconveniencing himself in the slightest. The heyday of kings and emperors is coming to a close, he replied in his easy, charming way, and I almost started in surprise at such a sentiment from a loyal nobleman. But the power of the throne cannot be dissolved without the sort of violence that would tear us apart. Instead, its legal influence must be reduced, submerged beneath that of a representative body, a form composed not only of the noble families, but also of industrial and social interests. Like a parliament? Possibly. There are many models to build from. I doubt Piani Trasal shares your vision. I think she may, in part, a future of production and economic expansion. This because it would benefit her personally. But greater production under her leadership would mean captains of industry who are pointedly not of the nobility. She can't trust people of her own rank, after all. They want what she wants, and there's only so much room at the top. No, this would give ordinary people power that could be leveraged against the throne in favor of reform. We would need to watch the guilds, of course. Can't have rampant socialism spring up. The good lady will doubtlessly find herself deposed or assassinated at some point. It always comes back on that type eventually. But the bones of her power base would remain behind, and it's from there that change could come. Oh, and... I don't have to emphasize the level of discretion this conversation carries with it, do I? Not at all. You could have told me nothing, so I'm assuming you've shared this because I can be of use. Every member of the family has value. If someone is viewed as useless, it isn't they who have failed, it's the rest of us for not recognizing and applying their talents. I'd been sipping my tea when he said this nonsense, and I actually did a spit take. He didn't blink. So you have a spot lined up for me? It wasn't a question. Well, one hopes. You're a bit of a challenge, I'll admit. Sindra needs a direction, and you two need each other, that's clear. Whatever it was you went through on Barlow, it bound you together. The things you yourself did and continue to do on behalf of my dear cousin are beyond any thanks I could offer. I see that you consider Sindranea family, but I also suspect that this connection is about all you value concerning the rest of us. Rank, wealth, influence, these aren't words that entice you. It's a lot simpler than that, I corrected, and I'm far from unmoved by the Vernays as a whole, I found it a very pleasant surprise to meet a noble family that wasn't filled with petty, greedy, venal backstabbers. It flew in the face of my carefully cultivated prejudices. I had a lot to unlearn. I still do. Elman smiled and nodded at this, appreciating the compliment in the spirit it was meant. He went on. 
I'm going to need someone within the next standard year to liaise with our private security forces. I've been making investments in exploratory mining lately, raw materials. The goal is to register as many new star system claims as we can out in frontier space during the valid period of our royal license of indulgence. It begins on day 13 of the year following next. To prepare, we've been purchasing new and used military class vessels to guard the survey crews and secure the integrity of our claims. I want a member of the family to oversee these forces, to keep them in line so they don't become a lawless pack of marauders, and to ensure that Vernet's interests are seen to out there. I don't need that job, I replied, looking him in the face. The position would be challenging, requiring frequent trips to unsettled star systems. It wouldn't be me doing you a favor, rather the other way around. I watched him with narrow eyes. I didn't doubt this proposal was real, but it was doing double duty. If you're purchasing ships now, you would need me to start immediately, working with your head of security to lay out policy and standards for the convoy. I was hoping that you'd source this security leader, actually. The uh, project is a little behind schedule. Right. I should do this thing for the Vernet's family. My family, as Sindra is quick to say. Instead of what I'm doing for the Codgets. And I should not, in any way, consider it emotional blackmail. He took a beat. That's not fair, Jock. We do need you. I can't be in two places at once. And I can't stop Lady Tressal while helping you put her in power. We are not on her side, he reemphasized, still keeping it cool. Staying clear helps her cause. Her pals wanted you to understand that, and I think you do. He watched me with as much calmness and clarity as ever, though there was a lot going on in back of those eyes. He took another beat, sipping some more. The man used tea the way I'd use distracting fire in a ship-to-ship exchange. He set the empty cup down. He adjusted it on the saucer so that the handle paralleled the table edge. It was an absent movement. His thoughts were elsewhere. You've never asked this family for anything. Not even once. The patriarch looked up with a pained expression. It used to concern me. What will he want when he wants something? It would be over fast, Elmond. Put these new ships to use. We can call them shakedown cruises. Just a couple of highly targeted sorties. We'll combine with Kajit forces and show the other nobles just how expensive the charming Lady Tressal is to them. Are you the doom of a sea jock? He asked it in the way he'd been speaking all along, though this one question held with it the expectation of dreadful events. A few weeks, I promised, picking numbers entirely at random. Ninety days at the most. After that, you'll be clear to force any change on the Empire you want without a murderous prowling around. His face was composed again, offering nothing but self-control. You make reality sound like a painting, he contended. A thing imagined and then crafted to form. 
The simplicity of your philosophy, well, it's positively chilling. A quarter year at the outside. You'll see. You have been listening to All He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Malov and is licensed through tribeofnoise.com. This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio novels and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care.